Welcome back to Radio Rothbard. I'm Ryan McMagan. I'm a senior editor here at the Mises Institute. And joining me today is Tho Bishop, my associate editor. And uh, we're back to talk this time about decentralization and gun laws. Now, one of our most popular articles uh, last week was about the new Missouri law, which, loosely speaking, was attempting to, in a sense, nullify federal gun laws. Now, legal people are very careful to say, well, it's not technically nullification um, because a state can't just undo the existence of a federal law. That's true. But what Missouri was trying to do is make it so that new federal laws or federal laws that uh, violate the thinking or the intent of what the state legislature is trying to do cannot be enforced in the state. So specifically what happened is that uh, a couple of weeks ago on June 12th, the uh, governor, Mike Parson, signed uh, House Bill 85. And what this basically said was that federal laws now that violate the rights of Missourians, and they uh, are specifically referring to uh, gun laws here, um, will not be enforced in the state of Missouri. Now, at least not enforced by any state officials. And and then the, the bill even goes beyond that. And it's not just a bill now, it's an act. Uh, goes beyond that even to say that if you're a local sheriff, you're a local police um, agency, if you attempt then to enforce these federal laws under a variety of circumstances, then you can actually be uh, subject to legal sanction. And so the idea here isn't to tell Congress, well, we undid your law, no longer exists, which would be in the technical sense nullification. But it's really a uh, a declaration that we just refuse to enforce your laws. And we've already seen that here in America just in the recent past. The point I made in an article I wrote on this topic last week was that uh, the marijuana movement to legalize marijuana is essentially this. It, there's some nuances there. Uh, for example, let's look at Colorado, where Colorado didn't say we're not going to to uh, enforce these laws explicitly. What they said is that marijuana is now legal in the state under these conditions. So it just pulled out the rug with that language, pulled out the rug from under sheriffs, police agencies, uh, the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, the State Patrol, and so on, who were seeking to enforce uh, state law on marijuana. Now, as with the Missouri law, it does not end the possibility of federal enforcement. So the DEA could still go into Colorado and enforce federal law in that way. And similarly, the BATF could still go into Missouri and enforce gun laws, uh, even if the state doesn't want to enforce those laws. And for me, the real issue here is political. We continue to hear from lawyers and people who, who confuse legal reality with political reality and just regular reality by thinking that just because... There's not precedent in the law for states uh, nullifying laws in this manner, at least not in the last recent, a few recent decades, that therefore it doesn't really exist. That effective nullification doesn't really exist because uh, it's not a legal concept. Well, lots of things really exist that, that aren't permitted in the law, and we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, today. But And I, then I want to mention the, the Colorado, the marijuana strategy a little bit, and then really kind of go on into the even bigger uh, more impressive 
a strategy of nullification, which is the personal liberty law phenomenon that existed under the Fugitive Slave Acts when states decided we're not going to enforce uh, federal slavery laws here, which I think is an even better, harder hitting uh, case of resistance uh, there. So, though, looking at the Missouri legislation, you know, both you and I, of course, are all in favor of states throwing up any sort of barriers to federal enforcement, federal laws, federal abuses, and so on. So what was your thinking when you first saw this act? Well, I was just glad to see some some actual follow through. I know that there's been proposals like this in the past. You, you know, it's interesting back in the Obama years, um, kind of you know, right after the Tea Party push, kind of when um, uh, Tom Woods' book on nullification was a big bestseller in conservative circles, you you started having kind of uh, uh, your 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 occasional state rep in some states pop up with this idea. I know Florida had a bill proposed in 2014 that was, of course, strongly opposed by the NRA, uh, taking this non-commandeering doctrine approach to nullification. Uh, South Carolina, uh, you know, considered, uh, there was a great state senator, uh, Tom Davis, um, who, who proposed it, was also shut down. And I, I think that was one of the interesting lessons was how the, the lack of, you know, for, for all the talk of the Rick Perrys at the time, you know, saying, you know, come and take it, you know, the, the actual willing to follow through using red state legislatures to fight back on the dreaded Obama administration. Um, you know, Republicans weren't serious about this as an outcome. Um, now, though, you have Missouri passing it. Um, there were many other, I think there was a, a, up to a dozen states this year um, kind of gaining traction on this. And I, I think this is something that that we should yeah, this, this to me is one of the most common sense approaches to addressing this, um, you know, counting on how dysfunctional uh, a DC is, the circus of, of congressional legislation. This, there's, there's some real teeth here. Um, and and, and I, I think what's, what's going to be interesting is I think that there are some people in DC that recognize this. And so the flip side is that uh, I, I know... Uh, some of our friends at the 10th Amendment Center was highlighting, you know, the massive increase in uh, federal funding grants to local police, which might show where some of these fault lines may escalate if this becomes a growing trend going forward. Yeah, the 10th Amendment Center has provided some good resources on this. I actually went back and looked at their site from several years ago, and they were noting, just as you said, that no state so far, and they didn't put it this way, but no state has had the guts to really just come out and say, we're not going to enforce these federal laws. And they specifically mentioned Missouri because Missouri had been uh, attempting to pass legislation like this in previous years, but hadn't done it, uh, but now apparently have done it. And uh, yeah, along the lines of other states, this uh, article on the New York Times that mentions it talks about Missouri. They mention Arizona, Arkansas, Idaho, Montana, North Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, and West Virginia as all having, quote-unquote, taken similar action to Missouri on these gun laws. So that's uh, apparently something that's that's really going on. Missouri's probably one of the stronger ones, based on what I've seen. Uh, but you start somewhere, right? Just like uh, marijuana states started with uh, medical marijuana, right, and moved up from there. And I think that's the issue. And I think um, the bigger issue is the political reality of it, is, is really setting up um, in practice, that there there is not this coherent uh, merging of interests between the federal government and the state government. And that was a point that the New York Times article made, is that, oh, yes, well, state laws on guns are very, very similar to federal laws on guns, so you're not really going to see any real difference there. But I think over time, if you put these sorts of things in place, 
in a variety of states over time, uh, the laws begin to diverge. And I think that was maybe what made the marijuana laws a little bit more effective is it just came out and said explicitly, these things are legal now, which made it clear what the divergence was between the state law and the federal law. But in a similar case, they started out right with just one state, just as this is starting out with just a handful of states. You just had Colorado do it. And then you had other states fall along. And once California did it, you know that that was going to lead to a whole lot more. And now the entire West Coast, plus Alaska, plus most of New England, uh, now all have uh, legal recreational marijuana. And the interesting thing is, this shows the political reality is important, is that the feds have really backed off on this. And it's like you said, with people in Congress, they're noticing that this is a reality, that people in the state are fine with this. Uh, in, in many cases, right? Obviously not 100% of Missourians are on board with this, to say the least. But that doesn't matter, right? It was the same way with all these states that legalized marijuana. What they recognize is that it was legalized and then started to build local support. And then the next thing you know what happened with the marijuana case was that uh, you had members from both parties in Colorado's congressional delegation then fighting for laws that made it easier to have a marijuana business in Colorado. And so all of those people who said, you know, if you don't like the law, you got to change it, even though, of course, drug war laws have always been blatantly unconstitutional. So anyone who said, oh, those are just, those are valid laws, you have to change them. Those were never valid laws. They were always unconstitutional, always uh, against the 10th Amendment. Um, so therefore, null and void for anyone who takes the 10th Amendment seriously. So all those causes all those conservatives who pretended to respect the 10th Amendment and the Bill of Rights, of course, were just kind of making stuff up. And what the reality was is that this idea that, oh, take it to the Supreme Court, change the laws in Congress, that's how you change it. They were wrong. The way you changed the drug war, drug war dramatically was at the state level. To do that, uh, using state law and to effectively nullify these rules, and it's proven way more successful than anything all of these pie-in-the-sky, change-the-federal-law people uh, we're advocating for for decades who also claim to be against the drug war. So those people proved to be useless, basically. It was the state's rights people who were correct. So do you think something like that could take off with these at the state level in terms of guns? I think so. And one of the things that's interesting is that not only has this been impactful in terms of how individual states are, are responding, and then, of course, the federal response to it, where, again, obviously, and I remember back in the, the Obama administration when this first started taking off, there was that push to try to escalate federal imposed, uh, you know, uh, uh, rating of facilities as kind of a, you know, get, hey, state, get back in line sort of thing. But, but obviously, that's that's fallen away over time. And, and even uh, this week, on that specific issue of, of you know, marijuana legislation in the U.S., um, Clarence Thomas uh, noted that the current state of things, the, the federal handing, handling of it is completely um, you know, inconsistent um, and, and bringing up, you know, the, the 2005 ruling on Gonzalez versus Raich, which he, he himself, I, if, if I recall correctly, I think he was actually a dissenting voice on that. But I, I know that's one of those Supreme Court cases that was very big on, uh, uh, yeah, it was a very anti-Tenth Amendment case. And so here, even the leadership at that state level is changing some of the conversation at the Supreme Court level, which has significance. And, and so in something like guns, particularly given that, that, that cultural element there, and, and if you presume that um, you have a, a, a federal authority here with you know, the Biden-Harris administration that might uh, 
that, that, that gives, I think, people even more concern than perhaps you had during the Obama years, particularly with um, the selection for the ATF um, director, who has a very militant record on that issue. You know, if you start seeing red states take a, a stand across the board, I, I think that will end up, ha- you know, the, the, the snowballing effect there is, is significant. And of course, it isn't simply, you know, limited to, to gun rights at all. I mean, I, I had an article on The Wire today about, um, you know, how, how similar action we take it at the state level. I know, you know, we've published plenty of topics, articles in the past on various attempts with, with gold and, and cryptocurrency in Wyoming. And, you know, the more that you have state legislatures voice kind of a, a the, their lack of consent in this landscape, I, I think that, you know, that is where, again, s- s- significant changes to the power structure can, you know, can be had, um, you know, so long as you just don't fall for the distractions of uh, the clown show in D.C. Yeah, and I'll be interested to see what the response is from state and local law enforcement. Um, because as the the 10th Amendment Center had that fun article I like called the uh, the thin blue line between you and your guns and was basically making the point that uh, if the feds really decide to clamp down on uh, gun rights and really start full conf- confiscation, we have every reason to believe that your local police force will enthusiastically enforce those rules. I know that some people seem to think that that's not going to happen, but maybe it's less likely to happen in a state like this. And and I think that uh, laws like House Bill 85 probably would make a real difference there. I think if you're in a state that has not signaled real opposition to federal uh, laws on this issue, that I don't think, I think you should absolutely expect local law enforcement, except for some, maybe some rural sheriffs and uh, some spotty resistance there. Absolutely expect uh, your police officers, even if they claim to be in favor of gun rights, to just be carrying that stuff out. Because I think the leadership then has to take place more at the the legislative level at the state house, probably if that's going to actually be widespread and happen on 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 a meaningful scale. Well, and, and this is where you know kind of the, the beauty of the decentralist sort of framework, where it's it's you know all the way up and down the various uh, uh, lo- you know, levels of government. I mean, in much the same way that who your governor was greatly dictated how your 2020 went, you know, the quality of your local sheriff has played such a, a, a major role in the actual act of enforcement here. And I, I think that you know, we, we've seen some sheriffs stand up, not only on, on federal level, I know in, in the, the eastern part of Washington with that very interesting cultural divide between West and East uh, communities in that state. You had the even nullification of state law at the local level. Um, and again, you know, once you start recognizing, okay, well, you know, beyond the abstract nature of the state, what are actually the mechanisms of enforcement? Um, you know, that shows where you kind of where, where the, the weak spots are. And, uh, and, and again, this is where the flip side of it is the, yeah, the heightened awareness of the dangers of, of, economic incentive structures there where, again, like if you have local police departments that are overly reliant upon federal funds, like that's going to be an issue, right? You, you, you have a system there subsidized to undermine any sort of sovereignty arguments by that very nature. This is the way that the Department of Education with its, you know, has been, been able to, to have its influence in, you know, schools, the way that it handles funding on these sort of things. And so, again, it's, it's something where, again, understanding uh, uh, the, the incentive structures baked into 
the actual uh, institutions of governing uh, matter a great deal if you want to get serious about, you know, how do you, you know, make serious stand, you know, take, take serious stands of opposition to the regime? Yeah, I did an article last week on that, on how uh, most people don't appreciate how most, by far, most tax collection in America, most tax revenue goes to the federal government. And that states are well, well behind the federal government in terms of how much money they collect and spend. And that the federal government is this huge big brother that's directly, in many cases, funding state and local agencies, really uh, spreading around the money through Social Security, all that. It seems that America is rapidly becoming this place that's held together primarily by welfare spending and by the federal government just doling out cash and that keeps people following federal rules. It would be a totally different situation if the U.S. were a real confederation, say, like in the Swiss model, where two-thirds of all uh, funding came up through uh, the constituent member states. But as it is, and it's rapidly moving even more so in this direction, most funding is coming from the feds, most taxes are going to the feds, and so they'll maybe be able to call the shots a lot easier with your local police force. So it might depend on just how much they want those federal funds will decide whether they enforce those federal laws or not. And uh, but but one uh, a topic I wanted to move on to because it's just such an interesting historical case uh, and very relevant to this, I think, is the issue of the Fugitive Slave Acts. And that that was an issue of just like this and similar in the sense where Yes, the states could not get rid of the Fugitive Slave Acts. Not only were they um, passed federal laws through you know, perfectly legitimate means, but there was there were constitutional provisions backing this. And because the Constitution made it clear that uh, slavery was national policy. and But you had a number of states that just simply said, well, we're not going to enforce that. And that actually brings to mind the other important issue here is whether the states enforce this will depend a lot on, on their ideology. I mean, even if they do get money, if they were overwhelmingly opposed uh, to the enforcement of these rules based on some principle, just as in many cases, some towns and even some state governments were overwhelmingly opposed uh, to enforcing the Fugitive Slave Acts, they basically became unenforceable in that state. And so these accelerated, these personal liberty laws, as they were known, accelerated after 1850 when they really heightened the Fugitive Slave Acts, again, constitutionally backed and said that you really have to assist the return of any former slaves to their former masters uh, in the slave states. And so states started going to all sorts of lengths saying, nope, you cannot assist these people. Massachusetts had a law that said that people coming to try and uh, export, uh, you know, kidnap people and send them back to their, their slave masters could not be on state property when doing it and could not use state property to uh, carry out these kidnappings in any way. And so basically used every power they could to try and circumvent this process. Uh, but you could still have federal marshals come in and enforce these rules. Uh, but the, the one fun case around this is Anthony Burns, uh, who was a former slave, escaped slave, who in 1854 was then kidnapped in Massachusetts and went through a court process, and they, they wanted to export him back uh, to, uh, I believe, Virginia. And there were riots, and they had to call in the National Guard, basically, to escort this guy out of state. And people were uh, trying to uh, prevent this uh, procession from traveling down 
uh, through the streets of Boston. And yep, they hadn't actually nullified federal law at all, uh, but they were doing everything they could to throw themselves in front of these uh, duly uh, passed and constituted federal rules that existed. And uh, they just didn't feel the need to enforce any of that or or do anything that was considered constitution or the rule of law. Um, they, they weren't concerned about that. They recognized that an unjust law is no law at all. So when I see that, I'm always very impressed with the follow through, with the willingness of these people to really just absolutely not take orders from the feds and put themselves on the line to stand in the way of of federal law. And uh, we have yet to see anything uh, to that extent, clearly, going on in the U.S. on on any other issue. Well, this is what what leads to, you know, why, you know, conversations about uh, standing armies and and centralized power always has interest in controlling the the men with the guns, right? I I know, I I believe if I recall correctly, I mean, when you had like the the yellow vest riots happening in in France a couple years ago at their peak, right? France started like moving around the enforcement outside of their communities because, you know, it's, it's always easier to... Build a you know, belly club against someone who is from a different part of the country rather than your neighbor, right? And and so again, that that disconnect from you know the, the local morals, local values, you know, the, kind of those 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 cultural elements that are uh, developed organically within you know your your, your communities. Um, you know, that is what the regime, no matter what it is, and then that particular period of time is is so. You know, that, that's what it wants to squash. Right and, and and of course this you know, this is why I, th- I think Rothbard's uh, work on uh, uh, strategies from liberty from the perspective of kind of like national liberation movements you know when we're living in a time right now where particularly with the American right and 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 you know the uniqueness of post 2020 politics you know you have a lot of people you know boomer Republicans questioning the legitimacy of federal power like never before. Um, you know, if, if you know, them waking up to the existence of a hostile regime in D.C. creates an opportunity um, for this to become normalized in a way that, you know, perhaps didn't quite exist yet in, in 2010. And again, I, that, that's why I, I'm, I'm, you know, perhaps uh, uh, you know, overly optimistic, but I, I, I do, do I'm, I'm encouraged uh, by, you know, examples that we've seen in Missouri. Yeah, the, there's very much a cultural element here. Uh, in this fugitive slave example, of course, it's huge, right? You had uh, you had certain culture that prevailed in some of these northern states, and they refused to enforce those federal laws. And then uh, in the, the slave-owning states, whether this feeling was pervasive through the whole population is unknown. It was certainly uh, pervasive through the planter class, right? And if, if you want to just see the anger that it aroused, you can read the uh, the Declaration of Secession that South Carolina put out uh, when they decided to secede. And it's, it's clear, right? They want to secede because they want to preserve slavery, at least in this declaration. Some state declarations don't mention slavery. Uh, in this case, though, it's clear that this was a reason, and specifically Fugitive Slave Acts. The refusal of states to enforce the Fugitive Slave Acts was a reason to leave the union. In fact, their, their rationale was, we had a pact with these people. Our pact was, if our slaves get into your states, the Constitution says you have to give us our slaves back. And now you people up north refuse to abide by this pact, that's the U.S. Constitution, so we're not going to abide by it either. We're going to leave and we're not going to be part of it anymore. 
which to me is fine. <laughs> you know, sayonara. Great logic. Sounds fine to me. The people in the North didn't want anything to do with that aspect of the pact, so they were ignoring it. Great. Go ahead and leave. Uh, and so they list a whole bunch of states where they say specifically Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts. They go on. There's like 12 of them where they're not enacting. They're nullif- quote unquote, they're nullifying acts of Congress and rendering useless any attempt to execute them, unquote. And that was a reason to just completely leave. But this, of course, wasn't just that one issue, right? The, at the core of this issue was a cultural difference where they said, I'm not going to not going to uh, enforce this Constitution anymore because I find it culturally repulsive on some moral level. And I think maybe if Missouri sticks to this sort of thing and other states join in, I think you could really start to see then a acceleration of these cultural differences that start to matter more and more. Because th- this is how the American Revolution started out too, right? It starts out with a couple of, of s- very specific issues, taxes and a couple other things. But then over time, it becomes an issue of we're not those people anymore. We're not like those people. We're not really British anymore. And the British deciding, of course, that those people are a bunch of ungrateful uh, you know, committers of treason. And so the the hatred, the animosity grows significantly out of just these original issues. And so I could see that that occurring here. But as, as you know it, and, and as we've noted, of course, on the side in the past, that's a that's a big line for a lot of people to cross, because once you start talking about issues of local nullification or or local uh, unwillingness to enforce federal laws, you hear so much from people who have been trained, you know, who were brainwashed in public school back in the 50s, uh, that we're one nation, we're all united, and we should all be helping each other out, and and uh, California is just the, exactly the same as Kentucky, or at least it was back in the good old days, and it's wrong to violate any constitutional issues, or we're all, that's all supreme, and yeah, you're allowed some local preferences on some issues, but in the end, the big federal government should prevail in all things because unity is the most important thing in the universe. And you could see that in the Republican Party right up until, I think, the age of Trump. It was as late as, I think, 2016, when Republican attorneys general in Nebraska and Oklahoma were still suing Colorado for having legalized marijuana. And what they were absolutely arguing what you'd expect them to argue. The federal, what the federal government says goes, it's the supremacy clause. You can't do anything on your own without federal approval. The irony, of course, is that those states are trying to do exactly the opposite on Obamacare. Um, but now here's the issue again. We got to ask the attorney general in uh, Missouri, are you with those guys in Oklahoma, Nebraska, who said that whatever the federal government says goes always and everywhere and that you're not allowed to do anything at the state level? Because that was that was the GOP argument just five years ago. But as you say, I think it's changed a bit. And it's interesting, interesting because there, there still is a little bit of this element within sort of, you know, you know I, I think this, intellectually on the right, this is a very interesting environment because a lot of the, you know, the, the house intellectuals of the past, you know, are, are kind of on the outs because of the trumpeting and all that sort of stuff. But there is kind of still this divide between, um, you know, so are, you know, I, I know that the Claremont Institute, for example, is, is very well known for, for its, um, you know, kind of idolatry over Lincoln, right? And, and of course, Lincoln, it, 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 going back to the fugitive slave issue, like that, that's that kind of, you know, so much of local politics, you know, we, 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 there's a lot of, of uh, 
you know, historical, you know, your, your views on politics today is often kind of influenced by your perspective on the Civil, on the, on the, uh, Civil War. But, but there still kind of is that element where, you know, it, it, is, it is the belief that the union, that the American union itself is kind of a, a sacred body that conservatives should be fighting for. Um, whereas I think that, and again, I'm, I'm encouraged because I think more than ever before, people are recognizing, um, in, in part because of the institutional buildup that the left has had within the, the halls of power, um, you know, the more that you see the right actively questioning that underlying assumption, um, the more you, we have the opportunity to have something that again, again, really challenges you know, that, that American empire, because ultimately that, that is what this, you know, any attempt in any doubling down on a, on, on you know, centralized law here is, is imperialistic against sections of the country that are, are out of, you know, that disagree strongly principally with the edicts of, of the capital. Um, and again, I, you, the question of course is, you know, unfortunately there's been periods and pockets in the past where, you know, there, there is, you know, there's been kind of grassroots concern about this thing, and, and then something happens, and, and we have a, a moment of national unification, right? And the '90s had many of these episodes, and all of a sudden you have, you know, 9/11, and you know, everyone has an American flag in their in their yard, and you know, we're, we're all Americans now, and, and all those regional differences kind of get thrown to the wayside. I, I, th I think it's one of the interesting aspects of COVID. And I think I've mentioned on on the show in the past is is that you know. In getting to that, that key cultural element, you know, this is an example of a national tragedy that rather than unifying the country, further highlighted profound ideological disagreements. And, and so again, I, I think those underlying narratives coupled with very key, again, I mean, there's, there's no more uh, uh, energizing issue, I think, on the right than guns. Um, you know, that is where you have, a, a, again, the opportunity um, for some very interesting things happen follow through as a secondary question. You know, and maybe that's that's what really changed under Trump is the the right, the GOP, the, these uh, conservative activist types, right? They seem to have really lessened their conservatism in the small C conservative sense, right? Where um, would, so yeah, you had all these people who were talking big about local authority and undoing federal power and really fighting, uh, being the resistance, all that during Obama or when Clinton was president. But it seemed that every time then you got a, a conservative in the White House or not a conservative, but just a Republican in the White House. Suddenly we abandoned all that. We didn't talk anything more about any local thing. We all had to come together and unite behind the great leader and uh, do uh, do what was right as far as the Constitution was concerned and unity and so on. And that didn't seem to happen really much under Trump. The, the skepticism of the military even continued. There wasn't enthusiasm for a bunch of new wars. Uh, well, I don't know if this law, this Missouri law, would have actually been passed were Trump uh, still president. I think I don't think Trump all, either. I don't think Trump killed the impetus that led to this bill either. I don't think he actually kind of stopped that train in his tracks. I think it was continuing to move forward and it just needed that last piece of having Joe Biden in the White House. So as a as an impulse, as a desire to stick with what has come before, which a lot of conservatives have that impulse, that seems to be going away among along of the along among a lot of these Republicans. And and I think about 
I will still, when I criticize slavery and such, I'll still get occasional criticisms from these old school timer people who uh, just get mad anytime someone uh, criticizes the old planter class too much. And and they have kind of a stock phrase they use, which is uh, these these abolitionists were agitators and uh, they had no regard for the rule of law and for the Constitution uh, and for the status quo. That For them, the status quo has is a very important thing and you shouldn't ever go against it without uh, thinking real, real hard. And of course, I mentioned this to Will Grigg once. Uh, I don't know if you remember Will Grigg, but I said, I said, look, these people are telling me that the status quo is the most important thing and you shouldn't do anything uh, agitation like. He said, hey, you know who is a huge agitator? Jesus Christ. And uh, <laughs> of course, he was right. He also said Moses. He said Moses was, had no respect for the established order. And you know who also didn't? The one who sent Moses. So, uh, yeah, he made a pretty compelling point uh, there, I think, this whole idea that uh, the established order, don't go against it unless you've got some real, real important reason. Of course, these people never have a suggested reason as to why you can go against the status quo. But that's a certain type of conservative knee-jerk impulse that a lot of people are unwilling to violate. But that doesn't seem to be an impulse among the Trump people, or at least among uh, the the successors of those people now in the post-Trump age. Well, and the advantage as well from from this dynamic and, and the potential for this being again a a, a more forceful uh, a trend than we have seen in the past is that it's not only a change in terms of the way that r- the right is perhaps you know getting used to ref- you know seeing value and really flexing the Tenth Amendment muscle, um, but it also comes from I think what the you know, the, I, I hesitate to use the, the word left because I think that can be a little too broadly, but the, the federal dictate, I mean, we, we are, we're very clearly seeing a, you know, kind of a, a transition from a war on terror to a war on domestic terror. And of course, you know, the, a lot of the, the federal, uh, uh, some of the leaked uh, uh, statements out there about, you know, you know who follows into it. It's, it's not simply right-wing extremists, but also you know, left-wing ag- agitators and things like that. And there's, there's some people on left Twitter shocked, shocked that the Biden administration is is, is not fulfilling, uh, it, it does not have any goodwill for, for burning bros after uh, uh, 2020. Um, but again, I, I think that the the willingness of D.C., and I think this part of it is just is how, how completely culturally isolated, uh, I, I think perhaps as much as any time in history, you know, the, the, the ruling class in D.C. really is, the more that the, the left, you know, the, the, the Biden regime tries to uh, uh, crack down on this stuff, I think will c- kind of be its own sort of self-perpetuating issue, um, which, again, it goes directly back to the point I was making earlier about, you know, again, uh, economic incentives for, for police funding and things like that. You know, that, that if, if they follow through, and I, I think there's good reason to think so, on making that a a, a, a priority of the FBI and all these federal agencies, that I think is going only going to to further escalate, um, you know, state legislatures, particularly given the popularity of DeSantis and his, his pushback on, on the Fauci regime. Um, again, if, if people get used to that being a popular move, um, then even if they don't care really ultimately about liberty or, or the, the theoretical arguments here, if, if, if they simply see it benefiting their own political future, um, then all of a sudden that becomes a very potent weapon. Um, so well, we'll see how this continues going down the, you know, the next couple of years. 
Well, I think we'll go ahead and uh, leave off on that note, and uh, we'll uh, <laughs> we'll see how this plays out, and if it does have a similar uh, trajectory as uh, the marijuana case does. So, uh, until we're back next time, thank you for joining me, Tho, and uh, we'll see you next time. <laughs>